WHYY and Billy Penn, it is hitting season. I'm your host, John Stolness from The Good Fight and Billy Penn. You can follow me on Twitter at John Stolness. Coming up, the Phillies get a big series win, a nice bounce back series win against the best team in the American League. Those O's from Baltimore will break down the series after losing the first game. The Phillies come back and win games two and three in comeback fashion. So we'll talk about all the heroes and uh, talk a little bit more about the Trey Turner saga as that continues. And we'll get into a little trade deadline stuff as well. Plus, I'm going to talk about a really cool and fun exhibit right now in downtown Philadelphia celebrating the Philadelphia Negro League. We're going to talk to the person who helped organize that exhibit coming up here in just a couple minutes as well. And I'll also have your stat of the week. Let's jump in here to this series against the Orioles and uh, a rematch of the 1983 World Series. Of course, it was on the tip of everybody's mind as this series began undoubtedly 40 years ago. The Phillies and the Orioles met in one of the least remembered World Series in Major League Baseball history. It was a snoozer, uh, especially for Phillies fans, as they won game one and then watched as Baltimore won four straight games, uh, three straight uh, wins by one run. But it was just uh, like solo home runs. I remember watching highlights of that series and being bored because it was just like some solo home runs here and there. But there was really there's no memorable moment that you can really hold on to. And but but yet here we are now, 40 years later. Could that World Series really have been 40 years ago? Yes, it could. Uh, the Phillies uh, with a rematch against the Orioles here at Citizens Bank Park. And this time around, the Phillies got the better of their neighbors to the South. The Phillies came back to win the second and third games of the series. Nathan Ackerman from Phillies Nation had this incredible statistic. I thought this was pretty wild. The Phillies have now won seven series this year, be it a three-game or a four-game series in which they lost the series opener. Overall, in series in which uh, they lost the opener, they are 7-9-2. and two. That's, that's pretty incredible. Last year, they never won or even tied any series after losing the opener, they were 0 and 15. If they lost the first game of a series last year, they were done. They did not win a single series last year if they lost the first game of it. This year, they've won seven of them. That is quite a turnaround. I don't really know what to make of that statistic. It's just Kind of a weird anomaly, a weird thing about the way this team is playing this year. Here's another one. This one's for me. The Phillies have not scored first in a game for a week. Not since last Tuesday, not since last Tuesday against the Brewers in a 4-3 win. It has been more than a week since the Phillies scored first in a game, and that happened again here on Wednesday night as the Orioles got got up to a 3-0 lead thanks to an Adley Rutschman three-run home run in the third inning off of Ranger Suarez, who pitched very well in this game, by the way, on Wednesday night, just gave up that three-run home run. But uh, Ranger Suarez did what Ranger Suarez does. He was kind of dancing in and out, you know, outside of the corner, inside corner, up, down, had... I was changing eye levels, was changing speeds, really did a terrific job against one of the better offenses in the American League. Again, the Orioles came into the series with the best record in the AL, but I think I think in watching this series, and I'm going to go back to that series the Phillies played against the Braves at Citizens Bank Park, where it was a three-game series. One of the games got rained out. It ended up being a two-game series. And they were they were nip and tuck series. The, the, that one, the the finale, that Sunday game against Atlanta, where Atlanta scored I think five runs in the tenth inning because of a miscue by Kyle Schwarber or something like that. I the score made that game look a lot worse than it was. The Phillies played the Braves 
really tough pitch for pitch, as they usually do at Citizens Bank Park. And here against the Orioles, I thought the Phillies really held their own against a, a Baltimore team that may be a little ahead of their time. You know, they have surged past the Tampa Bay Rays in the American League East uh, to take ownership of that division. It's it's just by a little bit, but Tampa is scuffling. That division's kind of wide open at the moment for really anybody to jump up and, and get back into the swing of things there. But the Orioles, we knew they would be better this year, but they have been way better than anybody thought. But they just won three out of four against Tampa, and maybe they came to Philadelphia. And, you know, we talk about letdown games in football. I know some football people don't believe in letdown games. I, I do believe that as a as an as a person, as an athlete, you can kind of get up for certain series and then kind of let your guard down a little bit. You don't mean to do it. You don't think you're going to do it. You may not even think you're doing it in the moment, but there's an intensity level that drops when you're facing when you're coming off the high of, and, and the Phillies are the defending National League champions, so this should not have been a series the Orioles would look past, but they were obviously geared up for that Tampa series down in Florida, winning three out of four and taking control of first place in the American League East. Clearly, that was a big one for them, and so it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Baltimore wasn't really at its sharpest in this series. But I do think if this big five, if the big five are hitting, if the Philly star players are playing anywhere close to the stars that they are, there there is not a team in this league that's better than them. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. I think they have the pitching to match up with anybody. They may not do it on any given day, but I think their starting rotation has shown you that they are good enough to be a division winner. I think the bullpen continues to show that they are going to be a scary unit, especially when the playoffs roll around and everybody gets healthy. It's And we've seen from the younger players on the Phillies, these guys making contributions. But the big five, the star players, the guys you signed to the big money free agent deals, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, haven't been getting it done. If they can, if they can get it going, this Phillies team is going to be dangerous and scary, and they could rip off, rip off a, a ton of wins in a row that we just haven't seen them go on that kind of a run yet here this year. And I'm, I'm not sure we will. I'm not sure we are. I'm not sure the big five has it in them. But I will say that they did come through here in this game on Wednesday. Um, JK was obviously, I think, the star of the show on Wednesday. He had an RBI double, two hits in the game. Uh, but his RBI double got the fills on the board. And he made a huge catch in left field. Maybe the best defensive play by an outfielder this year by the Phillies to protect a 43 lead. Really kind of Aaron Rowan face-planted himself into the left field wall. Now, he didn't break his face or anything like that. No blood uh, on the warning track this time around. Uh, JK made the great catch and and got the Phillies to back into the dugout holding a 4-3 lead. There was a runner on second base at the time. Uh, run absolutely would have scored if Cave had not hauled that ball in, and who knows what happens after that. Edmundo Sosa hit the go-ahead home run in the seventh inning to make it a 5-4 to four game. And, and like I said, the Big Five, they did their part in this one. Harper had an RBI single for an insurance run late. Castellanos had an RBI single in this game that made it 3-2 to two at one point. And then JT Realmuto with the go-ahead two-run double in the fourth inning. It was such a nice swing from him. You know me. I've been really hard on Realmuto. And I, I actually like JT Realmuto. I don't, I don't want to bag on the guy, but... Um, for somebody who's who they're really counting on to be a big bat in their lineup, he just hasn't been producing, especially with runners in scoring position. Um, just been really, really frustrating to watch. But in this case, he was ready for a fastball. And I don't know how many of you all read the Matt Gelb article in The Athletic where he talked to Kevin Long about the different struggles each of the big five guys are going 
through right now and some of the things that Long is telling them. You know, I'm going to have you read the article. You don't need me regurgitating it to you. But at the end of the day, the main point of it is there's nothing, there are no swing changes coming for these guys. It's in their heads. They have to rethink how they look at things, how they approach at bats, how they are approaching their preparation. There's different things for each guy that they need to do. But the thing for JT Real Muto was to start hitting fastballs again uh, and to basically ignore the inner half of the plate because pitchers are getting him out by pounding him in and he can't get his bat head around on it. And when he does, he's pulling open. And he may hit one of those balls every once in a while, but that means he's also pulling off everything down the middle of the plate and to the outer edge. And pitchers can see him when he's doing that and keep feeding him those pitches. And that's why you see him get jammed. And then you see him pulling grounders to shortstop for double play balls. And it hasn't looked good in this game on that two run double. He got a fastball that was kind of tailing towards him a little bit, but it got too much of the middle of the plate and he smoked a line drive into the left field gap. We just haven't seen him hit a ball like that all that often lately where he just rips a line drive into the gap somewhere. That's what JT Realmuto does best. When he is at his best, he's in left field, left center field, center and right center field, and hitting balls into the gap those ways. When JT Realmuto is locked in, he's hitting balls over the right field fence. He's using his power and taking it the other way. We haven't seen that from him for long stretches of this season, Uh, but we did see it in this game, and it was a really, really nice thing to see. Interesting move by Rob Thompson to bring in Craig Kimbrell in the eighth inning on Wednesday night to face the heart of the Baltimore order, and then had Gregory Soto pitch the ninth inning for the save. So Soto gets the save, but you could clearly see what Thompson was trying to do. He knew that the big threat that Baltimore posed was in the eighth inning as opposed to the ninth inning. Now, back in the day, when Charlie Manuel was around, when uh, Buck Showalter was, well, Buck Showalter is still managing, so he probably would have, he probably would have used Gregory Soto in the eighth inning and saved his closer for the ninth inning to get that save. And and Rob Thompson, for as bad a game as he had on Monday managing, I thought that was the right move. That was a playoff atmosphere type move. Use your best relief pitcher against the heart of the order. And if you've got a bunch of bullpen guys, a bunch of relievers who are team first guys who just want to win, they're going to be okay. Kimbrell's going to be okay giving up a save for a night if it means getting a getting a W. And Gregory Soto came in in the ninth inning and he did his job. Craig Kimbrell came in in the eighth inning and he did his job and it all worked out. That was the right decision. Even if the results hadn't worked out, the process was correct. And so it's a great thing to see Rob Thompson do something like that because there are a lot of managers still in this modern age of baseball that think they can only pitch their closer in the ninth inning. And Thompson realized the save is coming here in the eighth inning. And the ninth inning, Gregory Soto still throws 100 miles an hour, so you're not losing a lot. And Gregory Soto has a lot of closing experience. So again, you're not losing a lot. But it was great to see Kimbrell in the game, Greg Soto in the game, and it was great to see Sir Anthony Dominguez make his return. Uh, he had been out for about three weeks with an oblique injury, three weeks to a month. Um, he did allow an inherited runner to score, but otherwise looked pretty good in this game. Definitely a good first game back for Dominguez. And having him in there, which just push, pushes Jeff Hoffman and Junior Marte down the list a little bit, I still don't think either of those guys are quite ready for prime time late inning hold type situations. Both of those guys had a couple really good moments here in the last couple of weeks, filling in for Sir Anthony Dominguez. It was uh, that big Jeff Hoffman moment um, where he pitched two shutout innings uh, to keep a game to keep a game alive. I forget who that was with. Was that against the Padres? I think it was against the Padres. And then Junior Marte helped the Phillies wriggle out of a bases loaded 
one-out jam last Sunday without giving up any more runs. So both of those guys have shown flashes. They've shown that they can be productive right-handed relievers out of this bullpen and do some good things. But Sir Anthony Dominguez has it. He has that He has that quality. He has that experience where you would rather see him in the seventh inning of a close game than Junior Marte and Jeff Hoffman. So it's great to see those guys back. Uh, Jose Alvarado still appears to be a little ways away from coming back, not coming back anytime soon. So um, luckily the Phillies went out and got themselves uh, another couple of closers this offseason. So they basically have three guys who can close a team down at the end of a game. All right, that was Wednesday's game. On Tuesday, it was the daycare coming through with a dramatic win, coming through when most of the big five could not. Now, uh, we did see Bryce Harper getting another home run. Are we starting to see the power stroke come back a little bit? Maybe. He went deep against the Baltimore Orioles in the game on Tuesday, and I did want to play for you the Baltimore radio call because uh, they kind of got owned by Bryce Harper here. Listen to this. It's that same recognizable violent uppercut swing by Bryce Harper but it's not the same quality of contact foul out to third and a weak ground out to second he's just not barreling up balls Gibson's one and one Harper barrels this one up to right deep and gone right on cue Bryce Harper ties it with just his fifth home run of the season No matter what the numbers say, the danger zone always exists when you throw to Bryce Harper. The great Nick Picone, by the way, uh, pulled that uh, audio bite from from Baltimore Radio. Really, he's he's tremendous. If you you haven't followed him on Twitter yet, you really should. I mean, that's hysterical. There's no way they could have known that was going to happen. Maybe they shouldn't have tempted fate. But Bryce Harper, uh, it's almost like he had earpods, uh, AirPods in his ear and was listening to the broadcast. I was like, oh, yeah, really? Boom. Out to right center field with his uh, with his long home run. It was really, really good to see him uh, go deep like that. And just remind us that he can still hit home runs, but he's also still doing a lot of the other little things that make him so valuable. Really, he is the the, mo- the member of the Big Five that is that is doing the most right now. Harper singled in that game and scored from first on a stot double in the bottom of the ninth uh, to tie the game up. Aggressiveness by Harper failed to grab them the lead on Monday. Remember, Harper was trying to score. Um, from first base on a single, it was a long single, um, and was out by an eyelash at home plate, uh, trying to score the tying run. Um, the, the aggressiveness here uh, on Tuesday night, uh, scoring from first on Bryson Stott's huge RBI double to tie the game up. That's baseball, right? He got in safely there because uh, during on the relay, the second baseman bobbled the ball. You know, if, if he makes a perfect catch and a perfect relay throw, maybe Harper's out in that spot as well, but it didn't happen. And that's why, that's why you send a guy like Bryce Harper in that situation on Monday night. Um, you know, how likely was it the Phillies were going to string a bunch of other hits together anyway? So you send Bryce Harper, you try to take advantage of that, and hey, you tip your cap to the defense. They made a great play. In this game on Tuesday night, Harper got the better of the Orioles, and that's just baseball. Bryson Stott and Alec Bohm continue to come through in the clutch. Really, these are the two guys you most want up in a big spot right now. Bryson Stott and Alec Bohm. These are the two guys. Are that, Honestly, it's Stott. It's Bohm and it's Marsh who are putting together the most consistently professional at-bats on the team. The youngest guys are having the most consistent 
at-bats on the team. Again, this is something else Kevin Long talked about in the article. It's not just the fact they're not hitting home runs, although that is a big problem, the fact that this team is still not hitting home runs, that the Big Five is still not hitting home runs. The problem is that they're not having good at-bats. They're not having quality at-bats. They're not making pitchers grind. They're not seeing a lot of pitches. They're not drawing walks. They're not taking advantage of hitters' counts. That's They're getting into too many first-pitch strikes. They're fouling off too many hittable pitches. They're just not having quality at-bats. And that's been the big problem with the Big Five. Whereas the daycare guys, Stott has become renowned for his ability to hit with two strikes because he just keeps spoiling pitches. And he sees more pitches than just about anybody in baseball. Pitch after pitch after pitch. This is something that Reese Hoskins always did really well. Reese Hoskins was always near the top of the leaderboard every year in pitches seen. And it used to frustrate us because he'd always watch strike one go by. He'd always watch, he'd get a first ball, fastball cookie to hit out, and he'd let it go by because he wanted to see pitches. He wanted to see pitches. Generally speaking, it worked out for him to do it that way. So I think with with Bryson Stott, there will come a time where he maybe attacks a first pitch fastball a little bit more often and can hit the ball out of the ballpark. But for right now, what he's doing is something the Phillies desperately need, working tough at bats. And it's something he did as a rookie last year. Alec Bohm again, has frustrated at times, but he becomes a different hitter when there's runners in scoring position. It almost looks like he gets more locked in. And I don't know that it's going to be a long-term thing with Alec Bohm where he does better with runners in scoring position. It's generally speaking, clutchness is not generally speaking, a skill that translates from one year to the next but Alec Bohm, this year anyway, has had the most consistent at-bats. He's had the most solid contact, and he hit the game-winning RBI single through the left side. Again, you know, five feet either way, it's probably a ground out, and you go to extra innings. But baseball is baseball. You got to hit them where they ain't, and he hit them where they weren't. And scoring uh, Bryson Stott from third base, uh, Alec Bohm comes through again in the clutch in one of the more exciting games of the season. Really, this whole series was a very well-played series. Not a lot of sloppiness, some good pitching on both sides, some clutch hitting on both sides. You can see why the Orioles are a good team. They do a lot of things really well. But that being said, the Phillies played really well in this series too. And I think it was maybe the Phillies rising to the challenge a little bit. Knowing that the Orioles had the best record in the American League, maybe the Phillies rose to the challenge here in this series. And that's a that's a good thing to see. I did mention that the Trey Turner saga continues, and I, I'm starting to wonder if it's time to move Trey Turner and maybe even Kyle Schwarber down in the lineup. Edmundo Sosa got the opportunity to hit the go-ahead home run on Wednesday night because Trey Turner was given the day off. It was not Trey Turner's choice to sit. Rob Thompson made him. Uh, if we go back to how this series started on Monday, um, he had a terrible day at the plate, committed two errors in the field, and then was kicked out of the game by a touchy umpire. And we talked about it a little bit on the last podcast. Uh, it looked like Trey Turner, after arguing a strike three called, threw his bat and his helmet to the bat boy for the bat boy to put into the dugout, and the umpire tossed him, thinking he was throwing the bat and helmet in disgust in the vicinity of the home plate umpire. It's hard to tell exactly what the home plate umpire's reasoning for that was. We don't have, umpires are never forced to explain why they kick people out of games. And so we didn't get a chance to, to hear exactly why that was. But uh, after that game on Monday, Rob Thompson asked Trey Turner, hey, do you want to sit? Do you need a blow? Do you need, you look like you're getting a little frustrated. Do you think you need some time? Rob Thompson was talking about this on WIP on Wednesday and Trey Turner said, no, he wanted to go in there and Turner went 0 for four and the booze continued. 
So on Wednesday afternoon, he was given the day off by Thompson. Thompson said it was kind of just a mental break, and he said that he took the choice away from Turner, that he was going to make the decision, which again, that's what you want in your manager. That's what you want in your skipper. You want a guy who's got to be the adult in the room sometime, and he's got to say to the headstrong star player, no man, you're sitting. Because it's clear that whatever is going on with Trey Turner, it's in his head. Right? We we can all see that. We know that Trey Turner is a good player. I actually think Trey Turner will be awesome next year and for the next few years after that. But something that um, that Kevin Long said in the Matt Gelb story was that, you know, you just have to adjust to playing in Philadelphia. And I, I don't think it's Philadelphia. And that was my part of it. Like, I understand what's going on here with Trey Turner. He started struggling a little bit early. He wants to justify the contract. He wants to perform well in front of a new city in front of new teammates with ex- where the expectations are high. When things weren't going well, you start to panic. You start to try and make your own mechanical adjustments. You, ch- you start to change things that you've always done, and it starts to build on itself. We saw it with Nick Castellanos last year. We saw it with Bryce Harper in the first three months of his career with the Phillies. I don't think it's just a Philadelphia thing. We've seen some other guys move to new places this year and struggle. It happens a lot when guys sign big contracts. And they start to think about maybe the fact that they're earning all of this money, that they need to do more than they have. And that's never been the expectation from Phillies fans. Phillies fans have never wanted Trey Turner to do more than he can do. Phillies fans were expecting Trey Turner to just be Trey Turner. And by Turner's own admission, he'll be the first to say, you look at the numbers, he's been below uh, league average, far below league average as, as an offensive player. And and the defensive numbers, I don't know how the defensive metrics have him rated so highly. I, I don't know how Trey Turner can be listed as a, a 1.4, I think it was, I saw, wins above replacement player. I don't think he's been worth that this year. And he'd be the first to tell you that this season has been subpar by far. I think subpar is probably putting it mildly. It's been pretty terrible. So... I think this was certainly good for Trey Turner. I think he needed this. And I don't think that this is a Philadelphia thing. And that was my main problem with the comment. It's not a Philadelphia thing. He doesn't have to get adjusted to Philadelphia. He just has to get adjusted to the weight of his own expectations. And he's got to get out of his own head. And I think he's certainly pressing in clutch situations. He's got negative 1.2 wins probability added as an offensive player. He's never had a negative number in his career. For those of you who don't know what wins probability added is, what um, some of the metrics that we have now in baseball, we can calculate at, in a certain situation in a game based on history of some similar situations, what the percentage of a team's, uh, what, what the win percentage is of a team in that situation. So let me, so let me give an example. Let's say Trey Turner comes to the plate and it's the bottom of the eighth inning. The Phillies are down four to two. And he comes up with the bases loaded and two out. At this point in the game, most teams who are losing two runs in the eighth inning with two outs, they win that game maybe 15% of the time. Now, if Trey Turner gets a bases clearing double, scoring three runs, now all of a sudden the Phillies are leading five to four in the bottom of the eighth inning, that win expectancy jumps to, let's just give a number, 80, 85%. The Phillies are now now have an 85% chance of winning that game. Before Trey Turner's hit, it was 15%. Now it's 85%. That 70% difference translates into 0.7 wins probability added. 
You understand how that works? So Trey Turner's negative 1.2 wins probability added. That means when he's come to the plate in these kinds of situations, he's actually gotten them closer to losing than to winning on average this year. Negative 1.2 wins probability added for Trey Turner. He's never been this type of guy. And Thompson was asked, it was a good question by the 94 WIP crew who asked him if he's keeping Turner in the two hole because he doesn't want to hurt Turner's confidence. He said, yeah, essentially that's what he's doing. He also said he's keeping Schwarber in the leadoff spot because the Phillies win when he hits there. No, no, the Phillies win in spite of Kyle Schwarber hitting leadoff. Kyle Schwarber should be moved down in the order. Frankly, and we talked about this on the last podcast as well, Bryson Stott, Alec Bowman, Brandon Marsh should be getting more plate appearances than Trey Turner and Kyle Schwarber right now. They're having better at-bats. Objectively, you can't look at the at-bats that they're having and say they're not having better at-bats than the Big Five, or most of the Big Five. I think Bryce Harper's still having very good at-bats. So I'm not saying you got to put Trey Turner in the number eight hole, but you got to figure out a way to get Stott and get Bohm. Maybe they're your one-two hitters for right now. And then you just kind of figure out the rest. But I, it's continuing to hit Turner in the two-hole because you're worried you're going to hurt his confidence. I, I just, everybody's got it. That doesn't give you the best chance to win every night. And I don't think Trey Turner is going to fix himself at this point in the season. It's 100 and what, two, 102 games in now? 101, 102 games in? This, I think this is just what we're going to get from Trey Turner this season. I, I would be surprised if he really turns it around. Now, that's not to say he can't get hot in August and September and carry the help carry this team. I'm sure hoping that's what happens, but I'm not counting on it. I just, this feels like a Castellanos 2022 redux. And nobody wanted that. Nobody expected that for sure. I just think, I mean, this offseason, everybody kept talking about Trey Turner, the perfect fit. In Philadelphia. I mean, it was just such an obvious and perfect fit, and it just hasn't gone well. Um, so I think Trey Turner should move down in the lineup. I don't think he should be the two-hole hitter, and I think it was good that he got the night off on Wednesday night, and you just got to give it to Bryson Stott, Brandon Marsh, Alec Bohm, and I'm going to throw Johan Rojas into the daycare mix now as well, because uh, I like that um, Rob Thompson also put in uh, defensive alignment, uh, top defense, defensive alignment in the outfield late in this game, um, getting his best his best guys out in the outfield. I think that was really, really smart. And I also want to just mention Christopher Sanchez, who uh, pitched really well again in this series. He is essentially making a trade for a number five starter moot. I don't, you could not get something better on the trade market right now than uh, if you're looking for a number five type starter uh, than Christopher Sanchez, uh, which takes us to the trade deadline. Still not a whole lot of really hot rumors going on. Where's Jim Salisbury when you need him? Salisbury was the rumor man, right? Um, you know, we've just heard from Matt Gelb that uh, Tommy Pham is potentially a target, um, but I don't know how solid that is. Um, I'm not sure that the Cubs are really selling. I, I, you know, it's this National League wild card. There is some separation, but the Cubs are five games out. They're seven and three in their last 10. They've won their last four. They're still two games under 500. They're on the outside looking in for sure, but they're not that far out. You could make a run. I just, I just, maybe they will be realistic about their team and just see that they don't have the horses, but two games under 500, five games out of the wild of the third wild card spot. You could make the argument that you shouldn't trade Cody Bellinger. You shouldn't trade Marcus Stroman and that the Cubs will stand pat at the trade deadline. So I don't, there, there's a number of players 
I, I don't think the Padres are trading Juan Soto. The Cubs might not be trading Cody Bellinger at this point. Um, I think Brent Rooker, the A's will certainly trade Brent Rooker if they get a good deal for that. I think the Mariners will probably trade Teoscar Hernandez, although uh, Seattle's just four and a half games out of the wild card. Um, Hunter Renfro, the Angels, we're going to talk about the Angels in just a second. I don't think he's going anywhere. Tommy Pham is probably getting traded. Randall Grichik is probably getting traded. Lane Thomas with the Nationals is the guy that I think is, is kind of really starting to interest me the most here, outside of Cody Bellinger. He plays a good defense. He's got decent pop from the right side. He's having a very good season. He's 28 years old. Um, I, I think he would be a good addition. I just, I'm not sure what the Phillies would have to give up to get him. And I'm starting to feel like maybe the Phillies shouldn't just roll with Rojas in center field and Marsh in left field every day when Bryce Harper plays first base. I know Jake Cave played pretty well here on Wednesday night. Again, I don't think Jake Cave is the answer in left when, you need, when you're facing a right-handed pitcher. I, I want to see Rojas hit some, play against some right-handers. Why can't Rojas play against some right-handers? He gives you elite defense in center field. You don't have to worry about defense in center field with Rojas out there. Marsh in left field is a huge upgrade from Kyle Schwarber. So you get this tremendous defense out there, which helps you in run prevention. And, and Rojas, I think, has been giving you a little bit of something at the plate. I would, I don't know that I would rather see Johan Rojas out there than Lane, than Lane Thomas or, or Brent Rooker. Cody Bellinger would be a different story. Cody Bellinger is a clear upgrade. But, I, you know, Teoscar Hernandez is having a terrible season with the Mariners. Brent Rooker has some definite flaws in his game. Uh, he's not nearly the defender that, uh, that uh, Brandon Marsh or, or Johan Rojas are. I don't want Tommy Pham. Um, I don't want Randall Grichik. I just don't, those guys don't do anything for me. I don't think they're big moves. And, and because like we've said, if the Phillies are going to succeed, it's because their stars are playing well. It doesn't really matter. Even if they get Cody Bellinger, I don't know how much it really matters if the big five don't start hitting more consistently. But there's really not a whole lot of rumbling going on right now in terms of what the Phillies are looking for. I think, you know, we're hearing that they're looking for some starting pitching depth but I can't imagine they're going to move Chris Sanchez out of the number five spot. Um, I think they've got their starting lineup, their starting uh, rotation. Um, it's possible I think they'll go out and get another bullpen arm. Uh, maybe they're just not sure what Jose Alvarado is going to give them the rest of the season. This is the second time he's been on the injured list with this injury. So that kind of makes you a little bit worried. Uh, some other news. The Angels are officially pulling Shohei Otani off the market. It was a long shot that they were going to deal him anyway. But now the Angels have moved to within four games of the AL wild card. So that's close enough for them to be buyers at the deadline, apparently. Uh, so they're not trading away Hunter Renfro either. Those guys are going to stay put. Uh, the Dodgers have made a trade. Old friend Noah Syndergaard leaves Los Angeles to go to the Guardians for Ahmed Rosario and a couple other small little bits of rumors. But again, nothing real big here. The White Sox are looking to move Lance Lynn, reportedly talking to the Dodgers and Rays. And the Cardinals are looking at extending reliever Jordan Hicks. If they can't get a deal done in the next few days, look for him to be on the move. If the Phillies are looking at a bullpen upgrade, I really wonder what it would take to get Jordan Hicks. That would <laughs> that would give them a Houston-like bullpen from last year. That would be that would really really be something. One of the cool things that uh, we are you can go see right now in the city of Philadelphia is there's a very cool Negro League baseball exhibit uh, that is at Cherry Street Pier right now. 
Uh, and joining me to talk a little bit about it is one of the folks who produced the exhibit, Brian Michael. Um, all the different uh, photos and captions and, and all that kind of stuff there. Had a big hand in putting this whole thing together. It's a very, very cool exhibit. So if you're a baseball fan and you're in the city, you're near there, it's a, a spot to hit uh, over the next uh, few weeks. Brian, thanks for coming on Hitting Season. How are you? Great, great. Thanks for having me, John. So tell me a little bit about this. I know it's going through August 24th, so people still have about another month if they if they want to go see it. Um, tell folks just a, a little bit about what it is and, and what they can see if they if they head on over there. Sure. Uh, the exhibit is down at Cherry Street Pier. Like you said, it's open every day. Uh, it's called A League Apart. And really, it focuses on the barrier breakers from the Philadelphia Negro Leagues and its ongoing legacy today. So uh, there are four people in particular that it looks at. Uh, Octavius Caddo in the early baseball time. Uh, Ed Bolden, who started the Philadelphia Stars and ran the Hilldale Daisies. Uh, then we get into the more modern baseball with Dick Allen, who a lot of people know. Uh, and then even more contemporary with Monet Davis, who's mm -hmm. continuing that barrier-breaking legacy uh, even today. Um, so it focuses on their stories. It provides context of the Philadelphia Negro Leagues, the teams, the players, the owners, and gives people some real, hopefully inspiring stories that they can take with them, learn about baseball, but also learn about what these people overcame uh, and what people still are doing uh, to this day. So it's it's a self-guided tour, right? People can kind of go there with their phones and and uh, and, and snap uh, some QR codes and watch video and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, like I said, it's open every day. It's free to the public. We want it to be very accessible to people um, right down on Delaware Avenue below the Ben Franklin Bridge. But yeah, you walk through, you go kind of uh, chronologically through the different uh, four different stations. And yeah, it tells stories. There's places to take some photos. There's QR codes to watch some videos and documentaries and interviews. Um, so there's a little interactivity there uh, as well. Um, but like I said, we want this to be accessible. We want people to come and see it, uh, but also we want it to grow and continue after uh, August 24th here at Cherry Street Pier. So ideally, we're looking to have it travel over time, uh, grow uh, with more interactive features, and then eventually become part of the, the All-Star Game and 2026 festivities a couple of years from now when there's going to be a lot of uh, people in the city. So we hope these stories get out there. And that's one thing interesting we've, we've seen. Um, it's at Cherry Street Pier. We made it for Philadelphians. Uh, but this time of year and, and where it is, uh, it's getting a lot of tourists as well, people from outside of Philadelphia. So I think that part is kind of interesting. We never really considered that audience. Um, but a lot of people are learning about Philadelphia and, and hopefully, you know, in a good light and learn some of these interesting stories from baseball uh, and beyond. Was there anything that you learned that you didn't know before when you were put, helping to put this together? Any any interesting stories about the the four folks that you profiled, or maybe somebody else that might have come into like I had no idea about that. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, I think for me. Uh, Ed Bolden maybe was the most interesting character. I have a little familiarity, certainly with Monet and and Dick Allen. Right. Um, but learning about Ed Bolden, who was not a player, uh, he started this Sandlot team or actually took it over back in 1911, turned him into a, a national champion in the Negro Leagues, the Hilldale Daisies, that is, um, and then did it again. Hmm. two decades later with the Philadelphia Stars. And, and to be honest, the most interesting thing was 
he brought a lot of players back to the stars. Some of them went on to manage. Uh, Oscar Charleston is a, a good example of them. Uh, Biz Mackey, Pop Lloyd, Rube Foster, a lot of the big names in Negro Leagues, not just in Philly, but the whole country, uh, came through Ed Bolden's team. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and it was, uh, you know, he really had it down to a science uh, promoting and organizing baseball games back when there weren't many opportunities for black mm -hmm. ball players and teams and, and getting the stadiums. Uh, so he really took it upon himself to raise money, uh, to publicize the team, to get opponents, to travel, uh, and, and to turn a profit. So it was a business and he was a businessman, um, and did it all within this, you know, uh, segregation atmosphere, mm. uh, where, where there wasn't much help, uh, else out there. And you mentioned so yeah, no, yeah. that sounds that's fascinating. And, um, you know, for somebody I, I love the idea of like the it's a great team name, the Philadelphia, uh, the Philadelphia Daisies. Uh, that's just fantastic. And I know you guys, there, there's some like merchandise and stuff. People I know, you know, the owner of Shy Vintage Sports, we, we know you guys do you do merchandise. And so you do fantastic stuff. But there's also stuff that people can get there if they want to grab some some merch from from these different uh, from these different uh, things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, luckily, uh, one of the artists that we work with through Shibe has a studio right next to the exhibit at Cherry Street Pier. So um, we sell Philadelphia Star shirts, hats, Hildale Daisies shirts, um, posters for the exhibit. And also everyone can get free baseball cards that we had made. Mm. Uh, there's cards from each of the four barrier breakers, Cato, Bolden, Dick Allen, and Monet. Um so we're giving them out free at the exhibit, but also you can go to the website, aleagueapart.org and sign up and we'll mail you uh, four free baseball cards um, that our partners at Wheelhouse Cards help help the sponsor. So that was a really big part of it, getting sponsors, um, getting uh, fundraising involved because to be honest, the start of this exhibit or the whole idea uh, was from a woman named Carolyn Quick and she's a a grad student at university arts and she had to do a project on social justice mm. and she chose baseball and Philly Negro leagues came to us at Shive for some advice and some historical context. And once we saw her final project, which was a plan for the exhibit, we said, let's do it. Let's make this happen. These stories are great. You've done all the work. Yeah. Um, so we went out there, got some sponsors, did some fundraising, um, put it together and you know it, it really came together in probably about three or four months we had um saber uh the society mm -hmm. for american baseball research uh provide us with a local grant that really kind of kick-started the campaign um and then through a gofundme page we got a lot more um sponsors and donors uh you know everything from five dollars to five hundred dollars and then some sponsors like uh, baseball reference uh, as well they came in yeah. too so it, it's a really great a positive thing everyone we've talked to has been really supportive and positive positive and, and interested in learning more about it. So we're really excited to keep it going. Like I said, we wanted to continue after August 24th as well. Yeah, well, at least at least through August twenty fourth, you can check out uh, you can you can check out the Aliga Part um, at, at the Cherry Street Pier again. That's uh, at one twenty one North Columbus Boulevard. It's under the Ben Franklin Bridge, uh, so you can head out there and take a look at the exhibit, uh, buy some merch while you're there, and just learn a little bit more about maybe some names in Philadelphia baseball history you don't know, and learn maybe a little bit more about some of the names that you do know. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming on Hitting Season and talking to us about it. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, to wrap up the podcast, let's take a look at the road ahead. So after some tough series against the Brewers, Guardians, and Orioles, the Phillies' schedule becomes pretty darn easy over the next couple of weeks. The next 14 games for the Phillies. The Phillies go to Pittsburgh 
for a three-game series this weekend to take on the 45 and 57 Pirates. Uh, then the Phillies go to Miami for a four-game series against the free-falling Marlins. The Marlins are just having all kinds of trouble here uh, coming out of the All-Star break. Um, last look, what were the Marlins doing here on Wednesday night? The Marlins are 2-8 and eight in their last 10. They have won uh, one in a row, and they're still just half a game out of the wild card, so the Marlins aren't going anywhere just yet. Uh, but they've clearly... They've clearly fallen on some hard times, so the Phillies might be getting Miami at just the right time. Four-game series down in Florida. Then the Phillies host the Kansas City Royals, a, a shockingly awful 29-75 and this season. Uh, and then they host the Washington Nationals for a four-game series at Citizens Bank Park. So 14 games against the Pirates, the struggling Marlins, the Royals, and the Nationals. Is 11-3 over these next 14 games unrealistic? Like, this, this is a moment. This is a moment for this baseball team. Okay, so the Phillies go and come into the weekend at 55-47. and 47. They are eight games over 500. If they go 11-3, that's another eight games over 500. That takes them to 16 games over. That puts them in a tremendous position when you basically have five teams, the Phillies, the Giants, the Reds, the Diamondbacks, and the Marlins. They're all within a half game of each other. It is essentially five teams all tied for the wildcard spot, for those three wildcard spots. It is a complete gimme. It's completely up in the air. Who's going to win these three wildcards right now? There may not be a better time in the schedule for the Phillies to put some distance between themselves and these other uh, these other four teams that they're vying for these three wildcard spots for. And they, if they go 11-3, and three, they'll be 16 games over 500 by the time it's done over the next two weeks. Like, is it not unreasonable to think they should win two out of three in Pittsburgh? Is it not unreasonable to think that they should win three out of four against the Marlins? Now that's in Miami, so maybe all you can all you can expect is um, a split. And if they split, they go ten and four. That would be six games over five hundred. That would still make them fourteen games over at the end of this uh, at the end of this two week stretch here. So, um, but I, you know, the way the Marlins are playing right now, the Phillies could go into Miami and, and take three out of four. But let's just say a split, okay? Let's say a split. Let's not let let's not get crazy here. Let's not you know lose our lose our sense of reality here. Let's say they split a four game series in Miami. They got to sweep the Royals at home. They just got to sweep the Royals at home. There, there's absolutely no excuse not to sweep the Royals at home. And then four versus Washington, you win three out of four. You got to win that series. So you take two out of three from the Pirates in Pittsburgh. Let's say you split the series in Miami against the Marlins. You sweep the Royals at home, and you take three out of four from the Washington Nationals at Citizens Bank Park. That's a 10-4 and four record in these next 14 games. That is not an unfair expectation. That is not an unfair expectation. This is the chance for them to separate themselves so that when they come out of this, they're 65-51. and 51. 65-51. and 51. That's 14 games over 500. That would put them in such a strong position in the wild card race. And if you if you extend it out even further, the Phillies then host a three-game series against the Minnesota Twins, who are 54 and 50. They go to Toronto for a two-game series against the Blue Jays. 
They go to Washington again for a three-game series against the Nationals, and then they host the Giants for a three-game series. Gabe Kapler makes his return to Philadelphia. They go, they get three versus the Cardinals at home, who are 46 and 57, and will have likely sold off a bunch of pieces by then. And then they host the Angels uh, for a three-game series after that. So over the next month, and the Good Fight noted this, the Good Fight Twitter feed noted that over the next month, all those teams' combined record, 466 winning percentage. Now, the Royals drag that down quite a bit. 29 and 75. That drags down the 466 winning percentage. But it's pretty clear. The Phillies now, over the next month, August should be a great time for them. Right here, this last week in July and August, this, this is an opportunity. And if they don't take it, we have a right to be upset. Like, if, if they go 8-6... and six, in these next 14 in these next 14 games against these opponents we have a right to be disappointed in that like you're not going to have a better opportunity to go on a run and put yourself in a position to do some damage here and to get yourself a wild card if you want to be if you want to struggle at the end of the season and pray that you get another situation like the like they got last year with the Brewers choking games away late to the to the Marlins who were playing out the string during the last week of the season. If you want to pray that that's going to happen again, you can do that. Or you can take the bull by the horns here over these next 2 weeks. Go 10 and 4 or 11 and 3 against three terrible teams and one team that is struggling massively right now and gain some ground. Put some distance between you. Get some open water between you and the rest of the wild card field. All right, now it's time for your stat of the week. The Phillies won on Tuesday. They run. They won on Wednesday. They've been winning some close games. They have not been scoring a ton of runs still. And they've especially been allergic to the beginning of late. Um, just three times in their last 86 innings have the Phillies scored more than two runs in an inning. Think about that. Going back to Sunday, July 16th against the Padres, 10 days ago, 10 days ago, the Phillies have scored two, three runs or more just three times in their last 86 innings. They did it in a four-run inning in the tenth. They did it in the tenth inning uh, last Sunday against the Guardians. When you get the ghost runner on second base and nobody out to start, that's you know kind of cheating, obviously. But I'm going to count it. It's a four-run inning in the, the in the tenth inning last Sunday in their eight to five win over the Guardians. So uh, Guardians, I'm already counting that one. They had a three-run seventh. Last Friday against the against the I'm going to call them the Indians against Cleveland, and then four runs in the sixth inning of their win over the Padres on July 16th, ten days ago, three times, three innings of three runs or more over the last ten days. It's pretty clear the Phillies need to get those bats moving and start putting some crookeder numbers up on the scoreboard. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of Hit and Season. Want to remind you all to check out our Hit and Season Patreon. Let's do the let's get the business out of the way. We've got lots of great bonus podcasts for you over there. Just go to patreon.com/hitandseason to check it out. You can also find all of our work over at billypen.com. That's the home of Hit and Season. Go to billypen.com/hitandseason. That's our landing page. You can find out everything we got going on there. And we always love to hear from you. So you can always shoot us an email at hittenseason at billypen.com. Leave a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts for the podcast as well. And you can also uh, ask a question and uh, leave a comment there as well. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on Hitten Season. Season.